0: So, Simeon and Anna and Jesus presented in the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like this is a passage that quite often gets skipped over. It's after the main Christmas story that we know and hear repeatedly around this time of year. And it's before John the Baptist... um, And quite often we don't pay much attention to those little bits. We don't know much about Jesus' childhood or his adolescence or even as an early adult. But we do have a couple of little passages and this is one of them from Luke. So we've got the very early days of Jesus' childhood here. Mary and Joseph in this passage um, undertake a number of different rituals. Luke kind of combines them a bit, so it's not always quite clear that there's so many, but there are three different rituals. After eight days, Jesus was circumcised, says that in verse 21. Keep your Bibles open if you've got them with you. Now, circumcision was the sign for males that they were Jewish. You were circumcised, you became part of the covenant community of God. And at that time, you also got given your name as well. They already knew that Jesus was going to be called Jesus. It tells us that in the passage. We know that from elsewhere because the angel told Mary and Joseph before he was even conceived that he would be called Jesus. But he didn't formally get his name until the eighth day and circumcision. So it's the first ritual uh, that is covered in this passage. Then verse 22 talks about the time came for the purification rites. Now, this isn't to do with Jesus, but it's to do with Mary. At this time, um, or in the Jewish custom, if you had given birth, you had to be purified. For a, a boy, it was 33 days after circumcision. And Mary was meant to go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice to be purified. You're meant to offer a lamb and a dove. That's what the law said. But it also gave a provision in Leviticus 12. It says, if you couldn't afford a lamb and a dove, you're allowed to give two doves or two pigeons. So the fact that Luke tells us that they gave a pair of doves or two young pigeons tells us again that Mary and Joseph were not well off. They were a poor family that Jesus was born into, a poor family. Also in this bit, it talks about the, uh, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. So the third ritual that was happening at this time was the dedication of the firstborn. Now all firstborn, whether animal or human, were to be dedicated to God in the Jewish customs. And this comes from Exodus. So the Israelites have just just left Egypt. And God is starting to give them the law to help them form as a community. And it says that you have to dedicate every firstborn, whether animal or human, and particularly the firstborn males. So Luke, again, doesn't split out the purification, the dedication of Jesus, but both of these are taking place at the same time. You might be wondering why I'm mentioning this and sort of dwelling on these rituals, but it's because the rituals have a richness to them. There's a meaning behind them. So where it's circumcision, the meaning is to be about becoming part of the covenant community. This uh, dedication is linked back to Exodus. Exodus 13 Verse 14 says, In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean, why do you dedicate firstborns, say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. The firstborn had been killed in Egypt in order to rescue the Israelites. And in response, the Israelites were themselves to dedicate their firstborn to God as a remembrance, as a reminder of what God had done. We've talked about this before in previous uh, months and previous weeks, the importance of remembering and remembering well. Because if we don't remember what God has done, we don't give him honour, we don't give him praise, we forget who we are and where we've come from. Now sometimes rituals can become unhelpful. We know that sometimes you just get into doing a thing because that's what you do. And they can become unhelpful when we've They become the thing in themselves. We forget the meaning behind them. I think it would be fair to say that a lot in the evangelical church, of which we're part, and often a lot of modern thinking, often a bit suspicious of rituals, a bit suspicious of tradition. Not sure why we do this anymore. But it'd also be fair to say that postmodern and millennial sort of generations are once again finding the helpfulness and the richness in ritual. They help us to mark important transition points in life. Here the transition points are from not being alive or not being out of the womb to being born, being part of the community, entering in our Christian equivalent is baptism. That's our symbol of becoming part of the community. And they also help us keep space for mystery. There's something about them that is bigger than they seem. We don't quite know why. It's, uh, for many people, they find lighting candles can be quite helpful. And you go, well, that's a very simple thing, but yet seems to encompass something bigger, has a space for the mystery And it's also noticeable that where we don't have them kind of formally, we create them as a society. If you look at where there are shrines to people who've died, particularly at the roadside, where I lived in Bow, there were quite a few on our estate where people had been sadly killed, where there were candles, there was graffiti, there were pictures up, there were flowers. And that was all year round, not just at the anniversaries. They become a ritual, become a place of importance. So there's something in us that needs them, that needs the traditions, that needs rituals. Around Christmas, we have lots of them. For me, growing up, at, we always had Christingle on a Christmas Eve. Um, that's, I know that's not how we do it here, but for me, that's, Christingle on a Christmas Eve was part of our Christmas. Christmas had properly arrived when you got to Christingle. Other people come to Midnight Communion, and it might be the only time of the year that they come to church, but it's really important to them that they come. We eat the same food at Christmas. We go and visit family. And I've already mentioned one of the the rituals and traditions of Christian life, baptism. We also have confirmation, coming to church, taking Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we can't see the point of them until we try them. Mary and Joseph had to trust in the wisdom of past generations that said, this is important, this is helpful, you should do this. And if they hadn't done it, they would have missed out. If they hadn't gone to the temple that day, to um, for purification, their dedication, they wouldn't have had the blessings from Anna and Simeon that they did. They wouldn't have had the prophet, heard the prophecies in the same way that they did. So Simeon is this character that appears in this passage. He's older. The Mary and Joseph. We don't know how much older. We, um, we just know he's, he's older. What's really striking when it talks about Simeon, verse 25 to 27, is it mentions the Holy Spirit three times in three verses. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him By the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. I hope that you are aware that when the Bible repeats something, it is important. If it tells you something three times in very quick succession, it's really important that you notice this. It is really important for us to know that Simeon was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had given him a promise. The Holy Spirit leads him to the temple. So Simeon had been acting as a watchman for God's salvation. His job, his calling, had been to keep watch and wait for the salvation. When he'd seen the salvation promised, then he would be able to die. Now we don't know whether um, that meant that he was going to die the next day, or whether it was going to die in a year's time, but he knew he wasn't going to die before he had seen God's salvation. And he'd been acting as a faithful watchman. So when he says, In verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. That often means that we we often take that to mean that he, he knew at that point that he was going to die quite soon. But it's also just this idea that his shift had ended. He was the watchman. He'd been faithfully keeping watch. But now his time was over. The keeper of the gate had come And so he could knock off his shift. He did not have to do that job anymore. Go back to the idea that he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the salvation of Israel. But he did not come in the form that anyone was expecting. And I don't think that Simeon would have recognised salvation in the form of a baby born to a poor couple from a town, the back end of beyond of nowhere, had he not been in tune with the Holy Spirit, was not what anyone was expecting. He had to position himself. He was listening to the Spirit and he obeyed what the Spirit said. He said, go to the temple courts today. Today's the day that you need to go. And because he was in tune and because he was faithful and because he obeyed, Simeon was in the right place at the right time to see Mary and Joseph bring this baby. And he knew that this was the one that he'd been waiting for. And he takes Jesus from Mary and Joseph and he prays this amazing prayer of prophecy and blessing. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We we can miss sometimes the importance and the significance of what Simeon is saying there. We know that Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Most of us here are Gentile, that is non-Jewish. And if we didn't know, if we hadn't received the light of revelation to the Gentiles, we wouldn't be here. But at this point in time, it wasn't the first time that this was said, but the understanding was very much that salvation was coming for Israel, to Israel, for Israel. And not really for many people outside it. So for Simeon to say, this isn't just salvation for Israel, but it's salvation for all nations, it is for all peoples, that was huge. That was a massive thing to be saying. It was very countercultural, it was very radical. and it's important for us to not kind of skip over the significance of what he was saying there. So he's praised this incredible prophecy, and no wonder says the child's father and mother marvelled at what was said about him. They knew that Jesus was important. They knew that he was significant. But perhaps even Mary and Joseph didn't understand how significant, or that it was significant not just for Israel, but for the whole world, that their child, Jesus, had been born. And then Simeon blesses them, and then he says to Mary... This child is destined to call the cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Again, for many of us, they're quite familiar words, and we can kind of skip over them, and be like, oh yes, you said those things to Mary, isn't that nice? But I was thinking about this, um, I'm expecting a baby myself in April and I have to say if this is less than two months after Jesus has been born I can imagine I can only imagine that if someone came up to me and said something similar to this two months in to being a new mother for the first time I'm not quite sure how I'd take it probably just as a warning not very well because Simeon is saying, yes, he's blessed them. He said amazing things about the child. But he essentially said, this child will cause a sword to pierce your own soul. That's not going to be comfortable to hear, is it? And he says more than that, yes, the child's going to be important. A sign that will be spoken against. This child, your child, the child, the baby that you love, is going to be hated because of what, they say, what he says. It's not a comfortable thing to be told. It's not comfortable for Mary to hear. But I imagine it's not comfortable for Simeon to actually have to say as well. I don't know how many of you have ever had words of knowledge or words of prophecy for other people in the church community. But quite often, they're not very easy to say. Because they can be challenging. But Simeon is faithful and obedient. And even when the spirit prompts him to say something that isn't very comfortable, isn't very easy for him to say or for someone to hear, he does it. That's not to say we should go and say mean things and go, God told me, it's not what I'm saying at all. But if the Holy Spirit prompts us to say something that may be a challenge to someone, it is important to do that. Then we move on to Anna, I was also a prophet, Anna. She was very old. Now, the translation is a bit tricky here, but she was at least 84. If she was older than that, like she might have been even older than that, but she was at least 84. She was very old. And I'd say even in our times, 84, I'd say it's fairly old. Um, it's a good, you know, getting close to your life expectancy, sort of years by that stage. At this point, life expectancy was much lower. If you were getting to fifty, you were doing really well. So for her to be 84 is quite accurate to say she was very old. But also and more importantly, she was a prophet. Now there's only five or six women in the whole of the Bible that are given the term, are named as prophets. So this is really significant. This is an important, significant woman. And we're not actually told what she said, but we are told that she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. It's likely that she was saying similar things to Simeon, recognising that Jesus is salvation, that Jesus is the thing that has been being promised. And we were told about Anna that she's a faithful worshipper, She's In the temple, day and night, she prayed and fasted, and she has done this for years and years. <laughs> now we don't know whether she was already a prophet, but I suspect actually some of her gifting and some of the, the yeah the gift of prophecy that she had been given by God has come because she was so faithful. I like Simeon and Anna. They only crop up here. We don't know very much about them other than what we're told here. But I like the fact that we have here an older couple who are leading the way, who are an example. Now, the way that Luke tells the Christmas story, actually, we have an older couple at the beginning of the story as well. It's bracketed either end. We have Elizabeth and Zachariah who are past the age of childbearing, and yet still have the child, John the Baptist, miraculously. And at the end here, we have Simeon and Anna. We need our elders to teach us, to encourage us, to watch for the signs, to bless us. Now, I'll let you decide whether you now feel that you fall into the elder category or not. I'm not going to make that decision for you, but we need our elders in the church. My, one of my previous churches, just down the road in Bow, or Hallows, it was a, a church plant, a replant, so we had a very small congregation and it, it grew. And after a while, they decided that we needed an evening congregation. There were a lot of young adults in the area, a lot of particularly sort of young professionals, moving into the area. I thought, actually, we need a service that's specifically for the 20 and 30-somethings. And that happened on a Sunday evening. So I started going along to that and it started to grow. And it was great. We had a great bunch of people there. We worshipped in a way that worked for us. We did liturgy in a way that worked for us. Brilliant. And after a few months, uh, a few of us were talking with our vicar who himself would be in his early 40s at that point. And... No, late 30s even, actually. And... I said, yeah, this is great. We're loving this. But you know what we need? We need some older people in the congregation. Because we don't know, as a 20, I would have been in my mid-20s at this point, we don't know what this looks like, this life of discipleship, this life of faithful following God. We don't know what it looks like to be 50, 60, 70, and to have been praying and fasting and worshipping God for many years. What? what does our life look like if that we were lacking role models and so we started to pray for some older people to come and join that congregation in particular and we joked at the time that we might be the only church of england church that was praying for old people to come and join but it was true we needed them And God blessed us and answered our prayers, and we had a number of older people come and join us. And it was so helpful, because they were role models for those of us who were younger. So if you are sitting there and you're thinking, I fit into that older category, or I'm not there yet, but I'm heading that way quite soon, you're not done yet. We need you. In the body of Christ, we need you to be witnesses, to be encouragers, to give blessing, to watch for the signs, because your life experience and your wisdom from the Bible is so necessary. You need younger people as well. Works the other way. Simeon and Anna needed Mary and Joseph to bring Jesus to the temple We all need each other. We all have something to contribute to each other, regardless of our age or stage of life. And the final character that we see in this little passage is Jesus. Not referred to by name at this point, just the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. A question for those of you who are parents... Do you pray that for your children? Do you pray that they would become strong, that they would be filled with wisdom, that the grace of God would be on them? It's not a very complicated prayer, but I can't think of much more powerful to pray. And perhaps you don't have children, or even if you do, do you pray that for the children and the young people of this church? Do you pray that for those who are younger than you? We pray that for each other, that we become strong in our faith, filled with wisdom, with the grace of God on us. So I like this passage because it's got every age is represented. We've got children, we've got adults, we've got the elderly. It shows us that there are things, traditions and rituals have their place. They can have their importance. Especially and probably only when they're married alongside the power of the Holy Spirit. But also perhaps more importantly this morning, I want to draw out that we need our elders in our church. There is a role for you. We need to for those of us who are younger, need to be good at listening to our elders, learning from the wisdom. Looking to see what the role models look like for a life of faithful service, of faithful belief. Let's take a moment to reflect on what's been said and now I'll pray. Father, we thank you that in your church, in your family, there is a place for everyone, whatever age we may be, that we all need each other, that we have different gifts, that we can offer one another to build each other up. Lord, I pray that you would make us strong in faith, that you would fill us with wisdom and that your grace would be on us. Amen.